Good morning, everyone. I appreciate the attention that Tara takes to coordinate songs that providentially and perfectly fit with the message. Just those words, my name is engraved in his hand. Let that rest with you as we work our way through this message this morning. The personal nature of that song, my name, my name. If you take your Bibles and open them to 1 John chapter 2, we've made it to chapter 2. I'm only dealing with two verses today, so it may take us a while to get to chapter 3. <laughs> the title of today's message is Our Perfect Advocate. Now, by the grace of God, I've never needed to be defended by an attorney. That said, if that was the case, and perhaps I was falsely accused, I would certainly want a good one. Allow me to share a short story of one of this country's most famous attorneys. Amongst one of the greatest lawyers of all time, Abraham Lincoln, can easily be counted as one of the most famous. It was because of his upstanding work with his clients, Lincoln eventually earned the reputation and nickname of Honest Abe. In 1857, Duff Armstrong and a man named Norris were accused of killing a man in a drunken brawl. Norris was tried and convicted in another trial while Duff was awaiting his day in court. Despite the odds not being in his favor, Lincoln took the case pro bono as a favor. At a pivotal point in the case, Lincoln destroyed the testimony of a key witness who claimed to witness the murder because he could see far enough into the moonlight. Lincoln used an almanac to give the impression that the witness could not have seen the murder because there was not enough moonlight at the time of the murder. While the most famous part of this story is the almanac argument, this alone did not win the case. Lincoln also brought in key witnesses, one person who claimed the weapon used belonged to him, not the accused, a doctor who said that the injury to the back of the head could be caused by a blow to the front of the head. And finally, he gave an impassioned speech about how much he valued his relationship with the Armstrong family. It was all of that together that got Lincoln's client acquitted and eventually helped him become one of the most famous lawyers in U.S. history. Now, put yourself in Armstrong's Shoes for a moment, falsely accused. Could you imagine facing a murder charge, being falsely accused, and knowing that one man, in all respects, stood between conviction or innocence? If you had your own honest Abe, perhaps you might feel a little bit more at peace. Although, at the end of the day, what would the jury say? What would the judge say? 
Turn that illustration around, though. What if you knew you were guilty? From a spiritual perspective, this is the courtroom in which we all stand. Our thoughts, our actions condemning us, rightfully so, and we know it. Condemned and guilty before a throne that requires perfection. How are we to find peace given these circumstances? How are we to pursue a life of innocence all the while knowing that daily we struggle and wrestle with sin? In our passage this morning, we're going to see a theme that answers those questions. A theme that proclaims loud and clear. If and when one sins, we have, believers have an advocate, a helper in Christ who removes all of our deserved punishment. John has already addressed the reality of sin as we've looked at. There's no escaping for each and every one of us what should be our guilty verdict. Nevertheless, those who are in Christ have an infinitely more superior honest Abe, if you will. He is Jesus Christ, our perfect advocate. Amen. This morning, we'll answer the question, how do we overcome our battle with sin and then rest in his assurance? Three considerations is all that we'll look at from verses 1 and 2 that should answer that question and I believe wholeheartedly serve to affirm and encourage us, those of us that are in Christ, That said, would you please stand with me as we read our passage for this morning, taken from 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, we read, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. You may be seated. Our first consideration here this morning is number one. Consider his perfect instruction now before we look at his instruction we need to address this phrase right in the beginning my little children personal pronoun my is significant indeed and certainly paints an intimate relational picture not to mention throughout this book John uses the words beloved or children 14 times to further confirm this type of relationship that he has with these churches in Asia Minor. The point being 
that John considers these brothers and sisters of Christ as dear friends, partners in ministry. And I don't want to pass over that. We'd be wise to remember the benefits as we've looked at already in several weeks now when it comes to pursuing that type of relationship amongst the body of Christ. A relationship when we sought to define fellowship as intimate, more than on the surface. We've all experienced it. It's just simply easier to accept instruction when we're connected like this. Now, of course, our first desire is to accept the extra instruction that comes from Jesus Christ himself and his word. Hopefully none of us, those of us that are in Christ, struggle with accepting that. However, we're all in positions to offer direction towards instruction. And that said, when we practice pursuing biblical fellowship, it never gets old. We become more equipped to accept and then to give that instruction. Would that be said of us? Perhaps in our culture, we don't say, my dear children. But might we say, my dear friend, my beloved sister, my beloved brother. Another key element of this phrase, my little children, pertains to their identity. Now John is writing to a group of churches in Asia Minor, and he's certainly indeed concerned with the churches as a whole. Nevertheless, I don't want us to miss a vital component of what it was a concern of John's from the beginning. You don't need to turn there, but you can make a note and reference it later. Listen to the words of Paul concerning what was John's concern from the beginning in Galatians chapter 2, verse 9. This was written surrounding the events of the Jerusalem Council from Acts chapter 15. We read Paul speaking in Galatians 2, 9. For he who effectually worked for Peter in his apostleship to the circumcised effectually worked for me also to the Gentiles. And recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James and Cephas, another name for Peter, and John, who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship so that we might go to the Gentiles, and here's the key point, and they to the circumcised. Did you catch that? John's ministry from the beginning was primarily concerned with Jewish believers, the circumcised. This is going to be key for us as we work our way through this passage this morning concerning the identity of my children, my little children. Hold on to that. We'll look at it here briefly to come. So, what about that consideration of his perfect instruction? Look again at verse 1. First half, he says... My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. 
First off, what is or what are these things? Context is always king as we seek to rightly divide the word of truth. And we've looked at that in the previous context of chapter 1, verses 5 through 10. We identified these things as three charges, you might recall. Know who God is, beware the lie, and then walk in the light. As a brief reminder, we looked at concerning who God is, is that he is perfect and true and pure in his character. Last week, we were encouraged in that truth that whether trials or good gifts from God, we can rest that his will is good, pure, and perfect for his people. Well, what about the reminder to beware the lie of darkness and light coexisting. A tree will always be known by its fruit. Amen. And then finally, the certain truth that God has called all believers to walk in the light. For example, we looked at daily repentance being an example of that. So, if that's the what behind his perfect instruction, what is the why? John identifies this, as you can see within the text, with his purpose clause, so that you may not sin. He's concerned here with addressing a potential leniency towards sin, a sort of lackadaisical approach to Christianity. One in which creates stumbling blocks for us walking in the light as we frivolously approach the sin that we struggle and battle with. Let's bring this back to our attorney illustration. Here you are, facing a death sentence because of the murder in your heart. Christ, the perfect advocate, with the perfect instruction, admonishes you to confess that sin. And yet, some might respond and say, well, I've never actually murdered someone. Beware the lie of taking sin for granted. You know what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. If you have anger in your heart, you're already a murderer in your heart. Who among us is not guilty of this? In John chapter 8, verse 10, his gospel, Jesus said the following to the adulterous woman. Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go from now on and sin no more. Beloved, do you hear the precious assurance in that account? Along with his perfect instruction. Perfect instruction. That would call us all 
to go and sin no more, all the while resting in the reality that we are no longer under condemnation. Jesus does not condemn us when we are covered by the blood of Christ. Paul said it as such in Romans chapter 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Friends, consider his perfect instruction to find victory in our battle daily with sin, to know more of who God is, to beware the lies that can lead us astray. What's more, rest in the assurance that his perfection, his truth, character has relieved the burden that we all understand when it comes to falling short in order that we might not have that leniency towards sin and the second consideration I want us to deal more with the opposite trap of leniency and that's number two consider his perfect Role. Consider his perfect role. Look again at the second half of verse 1. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Now, I'll get to this opposite trap of leniency, but right away, there are two grammatical elements that we need to address concerning this phrase. And if anyone sins. Maybe some of our minds are already going there. And what that sounds like. First off, Scripture always interprets Scripture. This is what's commonly referred to as the analogy of faith. This if here cannot in any way communicate the potential of not sinning. The context, even within this passage, clearly articulates that, not to mention Scripture as a whole. Furthermore, and we've mentioned this before, this is a conditional statement in the Greek, one in which actually identifies something that is assumed. Beware of looking at it through our 21st century lens when we read, and if anyone sins. This is actually assumed in the original language. Secondly, grammatically speaking, many of you are becoming more familiar with certain terms that I might use and then define in the pulpit. One in particular pertaining to the present tense form of a verb in the Greek language. We've alluded to this often and how it communicates an ongoing action, one that is habitual. This is important. Look over at chapter 3, verse 9, for one example of a present tense form verb and how this helps us 
to further understand what's being communicated. Chapter 3, verse 9, we see an example of this. When John says, No one who is born of God practices sin. Present tense form, communicating the idea of habitual, ongoing, consistent, lifestyle sin. And John says, no one who is born of God does this. And we looked at that last week. Light and darkness cannot coexist. We walk in the light. We don't walk in darkness. However, turn back to chapter 2 in our passage in verse 1. We do not have a present tense form verb in verse 1 here. We have a different tense form, and I'll share this one with you. Some of, them, some of you may be familiar, but we're all being educated together, growing in grace together. This is not a present tense form verb. This is what's called an aorist tense form in the Greek. What's the difference, you're asking? This isn't a Greek class or seminary, but it's important for us to understand the nuances from an original perspective. The difference for an Aristens form is that this is typically a completed action, often in the past. Do you see it? John is asserting two things here. Number one, it's assumed that the Christian will sin. However, number two, It's not a practice of his life to sin. It's one thing to habitually, ongoingly practice sin. It's another to fall into it. We all understand that. So, I mentioned in the second consideration, we'd look at that opposite track. Opposite trap of leniency. Let's look at that. If at times, some are too lenient when it comes to sin, approaching Christianity in a careless manner, some, unfortunately, at times are too severe, too strict, imposing self-condemnation and regret upon themselves because of the sin that they know they wrestle and battle with. We must never allow ourselves to wallow in this condemnation and this pity or regret over our sin. Why? Because, as the verse states, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Now, there's a reason why we've used... Legal illustrations here this morning. This word advocate carries the sense of a helper or a mediator in a courtroom sense. Moreover, it's the same word that John primarily uses to refer to the Holy Spirit. Notwithstanding, we know that From John chapter 14, verse 16, that Jesus identified himself as a helper. We often 
think of the Holy Spirit as our comforter, as our helper, helper, rightly so. This is where this word comes from. Jesus himself was a helper in John 14, 16. <clears throat> we read, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. Jesus referring to the another helper, the Holy Spirit. But if there's another helper, Christ obviously is a helper as well. We might say that the Holy Spirit is our helper, our comforter here on earth. Christ is our helper, our mediator, our advocate in heaven. Consider his perfect role as our advocate in heaven from Hebrews chapter 7, verse 24 and 25. The writer says, but Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is also able to save forever those who draw near to God through him. Since he always lives to make intercession for them. Consider his perfect role. That he lives to make intercession. Remember that song we sang? That your name is engraved in his hand. He lives to make intercession personally for you. How do we overcome our battle with sin and rest in his assurance? How do we overcome a potential trap of self-condemnation and regret over sin? We consider that Christ is constantly making intercession for us. What's more? We'll deal with this in more detail in our third consideration. But Christ's role, and this is extremely encouraging, is not one of potentiality. It's a perfect role. There's a reason why I chose perfect in all of these considerations, as well as the title of this message, Our Perfect Advocate. His role is one that's perfect, specific, and intimately designed for his people. Listen to the words of Jesus in his gospel, John's gospel of chapter 17, verse 9. Jesus said, I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Christ is our perfect advocate, not the world's. He is mediating in heaven personally and intimately for you. Those who walk in the light. Even in his perfect role of salvation, Jesus continues to articulate the words of Christ, and I should say John continues to articulate the words of Christ concerning his special and perfect love for his sheep. The Gospel of John, chapter 10, verse 11 says, 
I lay down, or I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Perfect, specific, and intimate. Nothing potential. Likewise, the writer of Hebrews again confirms this assuring news of his perfect role of advocate for his people. We read, For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Christ, the perfect advocate, appearing in heaven, in the presence of God for us. Now, before we move to our final consideration, let's go back to the courtroom again for more affirmation, for more encouragement. In our opening example, we spoke about the potential fear of standing before a judge, falsely accused, represented by an attorney, but yet having no control over the jury or the judge. Even if we had the best honest Abe money could buy, our hands are in the life of that jury and judge. That said, listen to the words of John 5.22, considering his perfect role, Christ, our perfect advocate. For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son. Brothers and sisters in Christ, do you hear that? Not only is Christ your perfect advocate, He is your perfect judge and one which has already, if you are in Christ, wiped the slate clean. You've been acquitted. He is the judge. He is your advocate, which because of his blood now looks at you as innocent. Beware the lie of self-imposing the condemnation of sin. Don't allow the weight of that guilt to steal your joy, knowing that Christ is your advocate. He is your judge. You have been declared innocent. Those of us that at times are wrestling with too much severity concerning sin, We have a perfect and righteous high priest who has performed the role that no man could ever do. A role that has declared you, once again, as innocent. Listen to the words of Hebrews chapter 7, verses 26 through 28. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices, 
first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints a son made perfect forever. That's your advocate. That's your judge. One in whom we see as the perfect reflection of truth and purity. Who stands before you and declares you innocent. And our third consideration, I promise you, we'll find even more affirmation more victory in our battle with sin, coming back to that song again that his, our names are engraved on his hand. Look again at verse 2. And number 3, our third consideration is consider his perfect sacrifice. Consider his perfect sacrifice. Verse 2. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Now, there's a lot to unpack here. In some respects, I even considered spending just one message on this verse alone. That said, I think we can handle it. But before we dive in and unpack this verse, I want you to remember one of, if not, the primary theme verses from this book. We referenced it in our introductory message. 1 John chapter 5, verse 13 reads, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. Much of John's focus here is that true, born-again believers would be affirmed, would be assured in their faith, would be fortified and encouraged to hence go forth now and walk in the light because nothing will separate us from the love of God. Amen. So with that in place, let's dig a little deeper, especially with this word propitiation and the overall meaning of the verse. We've mentioned propitiation's basic understanding several times now, revolving around the removal of God's wrath. That said, let's explore a little more context for this word, for an even more vivid picture in light of progressive revelation and what we see now in the church age. This word, propitiation, in the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the Old Testament, is taken from a Hebrew word that refers to the mercy seat, which is the pure gold covering over the Ark of the Covenant. 
in Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 16 concerning the day of atonement. We see the high priest sprinkling blood upon the mercy seat in order that it might, in some respects, temporarily, and this is why this was practiced every year, cover or atone for the sins of the people. Now this, of course, was never a total removal or total atonement for sin. But it served as a picture of what was to come and also as a temporary covering against the Lord's wrath, notwithstanding whether it is the Old Testament or the church age. Faith has always been the only and ultimate justifier before God. Paul said it as such in Romans chapter 3. Verses 25 through 26. Whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. So, with that understood, hopefully we're beginning to understand on a deeper Since John's meaning concerning his perfect sacrifice, Christ's perfect sacrifice, one in which a perfect covering of sin over sin by his precious blood atoned for it all, one in which the wrath of God has been removed once and for all. The picture becomes to shine brighter for us as it links together in perfect divine harmony. What's more, he goes on to say this propitiation was not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. What does that mean? How was that helpful to the original audience? How is that helpful to us here this morning, given our understanding of propitiation and this removal of wrath? Does this mean that God has literally removed his wrath from the entire world? On the surface, it sounds like that. Now, We won't take much time answering that question because, my friends, simply it's heresy. Wide is the path that leads to death and destruction. If God was removing his wrath from the whole world, we'd have universalism. And those of us that are in Christ, none of us believe that. Universalism being 
the belief that everyone gets to heaven. God is not covering the sins of those that are in hell, past, present, or future. His wrath will abide on them for eternity where there is gnashing and weeping, where the fire is not quenched and the worm does not die. That is a good and perfect righteous judge to those who do not repent and believe and trust in Christ. Although, If that's not the case, which is clear to see, what about this simply pertaining to the potential removal of God's wrath for the whole world? A potential removal that is initiated by man when he believes. I want to share with you four facts. We could call these sub-points to considering his perfect sacrifice has shed tremendous light on the response to that question, which I would wholeheartedly reject and state as being false. Number one, don't forget, as we mentioned, Galatians chapter 2, verse 9. This is concerning John's primary focus in ministry. Jewish believers, the circumcised. When John specifies our sins and then makes a second distinction for the world, he's clearly making an ethnic distinction. Simply stated, this is the difference between Jewish believers and believers, Gentiles of the world. This is the plain sense meaning of this text. Be that as it may. Let's look at more to support it. Number two. Don't forget John's primary desire. One of his primary desires here is to encourage true born again believers. The title of our message is not our potential advocate. The title of our message is Our Perfect Advocate. Why were believers of that day and us here today encouraged? They were encouraged because Christ paid the perfect sacrifice and now operates as the perfect advocate specifically and intimately for his sheep beyond encouraging those of us who are his sheep his propitiation or atonement for our sin accomplished exactly what he determined to do it was sufficient for the whole world Yet perfectly and only efficiently designed for his people. His role and sacrifice for us is not being frustrated by the will of depraved men. 
That's a less than perfect Savior. Beloved, my friends, as you consider his perfect sacrifice, rest in the assurance that your personal name was engraved in his hand as we sung. His perfect sacrifice was not just for a potential mass of humanity. How is that encouraging? A potential mass of humanity? No. It was directly for you. Wow. Number three. And this is another component of Greek grammar. Regarding potentiality, there are certain verbs which communicate potential and then communicate reality or what is real. Without getting into the technicalities of this, some of you may be interested, but it is the mood in the Greek language of the verb. When John states he is the propitiation for our sins, he uses what is called the indicative mood. This is all about reality, not potential. Vital element for us in rightly dividing this word. And then finally, number four of our subpoints to our third consideration. Don't forget the nature of man apart from the grace of God. This cannot be a potential propitiation for the sins of the entire world. Why? Because the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God and indeed does not submit to God's law. Romans chapter 8 verse 7. Apart from the grace of God, we were dead in our trespasses and sins, continually pursuing what we wanted in the lusts of our flesh. How does potential propitiation help there? We find encouragement in the certain fact that God first chose us and removed his wrath from us by his initiating work of grace. Hallelujah. Anything apart from that would have left us condemned and we would have ran our race, as the song says, hell bound as it is. All that to say, and I'm closing. When the trials of this life and your battle with sin begin to overwhelm you, 
Consider his perfect instruction. It will certainly, indeed, keep you focused on walking in the light by God's grace. Consider his perfect role. One in which he is your mediator and judge. One in which he has declared you innocent. And then consider his perfect sacrifice. One in which he has demonstrated the depth of his love for people from every tribe and tongue and language and nation. One in which he thought specifically, purposely, personally of you on the cross and removed the wrath that you and I deserved. That's affirmation. That's hope. That's encouragement for us to go forth knowing that our lives are in his hands. And by the grace of God, we walk by truth and light, not in darkness. Bow with me in prayer. Lord God, I'm reminded of the Apostle Peter when he said we come to certain passages of Scripture that in and of themselves are difficult to discern and understand, Lord. But your word is truth. And Lord, it is completely capable of equipping us and completing us for every good work. Lord, help us by the power of the Holy Spirit to come to your word with a submissive and humble heart to hear its plain sense meaning in order that we might be transformed and renewed, taking off the old man, putting on the new, in order that we might be found walking in the light. Lord, create in us by the power of your spirit a hatred for sin that we might not Approach Christianity in a lackadaisical manner. But, oh God, help us to rest in the fact that our perfect advocate, mediator, and judge has declared us innocent. There's no more condemnation for us. Lord, help us as unworthy servants to go forward in grace glorifying your name in all that we do. In the mighty and precious name of our Lord and Savior, King Jesus, we pray.